Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. He gonna make some big boy noise on the podcast. Hello, endurance athletes. This is your host, Brad Kearns, getting into the Q&A right away with the music go away with one push of the button. Hi, Estelle, the first question of the day. She has plantar fasciitis. Oh my gosh, the worst, one of the worst injuries uh, for the runner, fitness enthusiast. I'm coming to you from the bottom of my heart with that pain and aching in the bottom of my heart because I too suffered from that horrible condition for 15 years on and off, but usually on, and I have some fun, exciting stuff to tell you so that you will suffer no more. But let's hear Estelle talking about it. She's had plantar fasciitis for five years. Oh, only five years? That's not long, Estelle. Don't worry. No running to heal it. And then as soon as I start to increase the walking running, it comes back. Absolutely. Guaranteed. It's going to come back. Rest does not work for plantar fasciitis. Trip out. I've tried icing, shockwave, massage, calf, Achilles tendon stretches, etc. Dry needling has had the most success in resolving the inflammation and keeping the flexibility by rolling the bottom of my feet with a small ball. And then I launched into a uh, impassioned email response, and I'm going to tell everybody that this thing can be cured with some simple stretching uh, of the gastroc and the soleus calf muscles. So you're familiar with the wall stretch where you push against the wall, one of the standard runner stretches, and you either uh, extend your back leg straight, the front leg is uh, bent forward, so you're pretending like you're trying to push the wall over. So when you extend the back leg, uh, that is stretching the soleus, the calf muscles that run alongside your calf and a calf and attached to the Achilles tendon. And then when you bend your back leg, to kind of alter the stretch a bit, you will stretch the gastroc, the gastrocnemius, the ball-shaped muscle at the top of your calf. How do you remember to tell those apart? I think of gastroc as a rock, so there's a big rock in your calf, if you're ripped, I guess. If not, go train and try to get your rock going on, get your rock on. Anyway, when you stretch those two muscles, you lengthen the muscle by some devoted stretching for weeks and weeks, holding the stretches for two minutes for each one. This is a phenomenally long time for most athletes who are used to stretching and holding a position for 20 seconds. So if you hold each one for two minutes and do it several times a day, you will succeed in lengthening those muscle groups. And when you can lengthen the calf muscles and uh, by uh, conjunction, the Achilles tendon will also lengthen out then you take the stress off of the arch, the uh, location of the plantar fasciitis pain. So it's a cure. It actually works. Uh, some random foot doctor at a running expo at the Urban Cow 
half marathon in Sacramento told this to me with great confidence. I said, Hey, you know, any tips for plantar fasciitis? And he says, Oh, sure. I can cure that forever. Uh, with, uh, a quick stretching, uh, recommendation. I'm like, come on, man. I've had this for 15 years. What are you talking about? And that's what he said. He said, hold the stretches for two minutes. That's the key because that's when you're trying to go for the muscle lengthening effect. And as you will soon find out when you try, it's not too easy to hold the stretch for that long. It's pretty uh, difficult and you have to work up to it and continue to uh, maintain that commitment each day to get those muscles lengthening. Because of course, uh, when you run, everything's getting tightened up. So you're trying to counteract the uh, consequence of everything being too tight down low in the uh, plantar fasciitis area and transferred up to tight calves, tight Achilles tendons. So we can do some muscle lengthening and cure that thing. And the reason why rest doesn't work, interestingly, is because you're weakening the muscles, reducing the blood flow to the area, which helps with the circulation and removing waste products. So when you rest, you kind of just atrophy and you haven't changed the underlying condition of an overly tight uh, lower leg. So that's why the stretching is the key and getting out there and exercising and keeping weight on it. So good luck to you. Thanks a lot for writing, Estelle. Write back and tell me how wonderful it is to have cured your plantar fasciitis. Interesting anecdote, when I first had some relief from the plantar condition, came from switching to Vibrams and other zero-drop minimalist footwear. So by walking around all summer long, uh, wearing the five fingers or trying to go barefoot more, uh, I forced those muscles to lengthen, right? Because when you're in an elevated heel shoe, even a small elevation, 12 millimeters or whatever, you are allowing those muscles to uh, shorten up, right? So now with my heel going all the way to the ground on every stride and running around in Vibrams, I experienced immediate relief from the plantar condition when I did a formal running session, uh, even in running shoes, just because of that constant daily lengthening effect of wearing uh, the five fingers. However, at the same time, I developed plantar fasciitis in the other foot due to the abrupt uh, and stressful nature of spending years and years wearing elevated heel shoes and then switching to barefoot cold turkey. So maybe it wasn't the best strategy for me, uh, but I got uh, the condition uh, fixed up on my right foot and then dealt with the left foot for uh, several more years until uh, I met the dude at the race expo. So that's my plantar fasciitis story. Uh, Mark writes in, I've been using an adjustable desk for a few weeks that allows me to work standing up or sitting. I really like it. How much I stand depends on how I feel each day, but it's usually 50% of the time. That's pretty good, man. I'm trying the same thing to go standing, sitting, standing, sitting. I'm getting better at standing, but I don't care. I'm not striving for it. I'm not trying to suffer and have an aching lower back from standing too long. Uh, so I just want to be comfortable and strive for that variation in the workplace. So I don't have any protocol here where I'm going 20 minutes on, 20 minutes down. But some days I'll stand for several hours and feel good. And then other days I'll feel like uh, sitting down for greater percentage of the time also has to relate to uh, the workouts I've been doing, whether I have soreness, things like that. But uh, surprisingly so, if I'm sore and stiff from, let's say, a sprint workout the previous day, the next day I will stand more and I will walk around and move around the house more. 
uh, get these little bursts of movement and activity because those are really, really important for recovering from high-intensity explosive effort and muscle soreness. The uh, sitting around idea after your uh, you know, epic exercise efforts is going to prolong recovery. Kind of counterintuitive, right? Because you feel like, well, I did a big day yesterday, so I'm really going to sit around and rest today so I can recover faster. But movement is the key to uh, optimal recovery. So Mark says, back to Mark, I can already feel that my core and lower back are stronger. Do you have any stories of endurance athletes with desk jobs getting benefits from using a stand-up desk? Yes, man. Great question. This opens up the big can of worms. What is an endurance athlete all about? It's about enduring, pursuing a daunting competitive challenge where you're asked to perform for hours and hours or even for 30 minutes of endurance activity. Remember that uh, even a short duration effort like a 5K or 10K is predominantly endurance, predominantly the aerobic system is contributing to the performance far more so than the brief explosive anaerobic muscle fibers. So if you think that your goal is endurance and to endure the 50K trail run or to endure the uh, long distance or short distance triathlon, then we have to apply this concept to our daily activity patterns. And if you're a person who faithfully puts in your uh, hour to two hours of training every single day, and then the other 20, 21, 22 hours are sitting around on the subway, in the office, consuming digital entertainment in the evening, you're not really using your body, then you're a narrowly focused specimen who's good for uh, conducting the workout and little else, and you have what Katie Bowman lovingly calls the lazy athlete mentality where because you do your workouts, you have a free hall pass to be more lazy uh, in general sense throughout the day. And that part, it appears, not just conjecture, but uh, science is showing that it appears to be counterproductive to your endurance goals. The compensation theory of exercise, the additive model of recovery, you can search Mark's Daily Apple for that wonderful uh, piece about rethinking the concept of recovery. Uh, the gist of it here is that you burn the same amount of calories every day, whether you do an impressive workout or not. And when you do an impressive workout, your body finds ways to compensate and become generally lazy and burning fewer calories at rest throughout the day and doing less throughout the day. So it seems like the ideal uh, protocol for endurance athlete is to train sensibly, have a nice a uh, strategic mix of workouts where you're committing to aerobic-based development for sustained periods, blocks during the year, and you're engaging at the right times in brief, explosive, high-intensity workouts that last for less duration than your bread-and-butter endurance workouts, but you're also throwing in that critical other element of being generally active, increasing your general activity and movement throughout the day. And under that category, as detailed in the book, Primal Endurance, we're talking about walking around. That's first and foremost, just walking more throughout the day, uh, doing flexibility, mobility, stretching drills, dynamic stretching drills, things like uh, a quick set of deep squats while you're watching TV or uh, taking your phone calls on the go and doing single leg 
uh, split Bulgarian squat uh, off of a chair or bench. That's where you put one leg back on the chair and lower down into a lunge position. And these things are very, very easy to integrate into your daily routine. They don't take much time. Uh, a set of 25 deep squats probably takes a minute or I don't know, uh, never timed it, uh, but it's nothing. But at the same time, it's pretty strenuous. You're going to burn like crazy if you're not used to it. And if you're not that competent at doing even a small amount of mobility strength maneuver, like doing deep squats or hauling off a set of 10 pull-ups when you uh, walk through a certain door a couple few times a day, if you don't have these things in your repertoire, you're going to suffer the consequences at mile 20 of the marathon. It's about that simple. Or mile 40 of the 56-mile bike ride or fill in the blank. It's when your hip flexors start to shut down and you start to shuffle instead of prance along like a deer, like you learned with the running technique instruction videos in the Primal Endurance Mastery course. And so same with uh, loading up sandbags for the uh, coming rainstorm and doing wonderful active things. When I'm at my stand-up desk, I like to do this ballet dancer type drill where I just extend one leg out trying to achieve a 90 degree angle from the leg on the ground and then kick out at 90 degrees. And then uh, with my knee in one place, I will uh, extend and uh, contract the lower leg. So I'm doing kind of little uh, sideways ballerina move. All these little things add up over time. Think about it over a 365-day period where, yes, I do deep squats all the time throughout the day, or I uh, hit a few pull-ups here and there. I do my flexibility mobility drills. Foam rolling could even count in this category of adding flexibility mobility exercises into your game. Great comment from Dr. Kelly Starrett uh, in his series of videos in the Primal Endurance Mastery course where he said very emphatically that endurance athletes should dedicate 15 minutes of every training hour to flexibility, mobility, functionality drills. Oh my gosh, can you imagine when you're charting your training log and striving to get up to that 12 hours a week uh, standard so you can prepare properly per conventional wisdom for the half Ironman race or whatever people are saying is your minimum threshold of uh, hourly heartbeats we got to think in a bigger picture here. And if the world's leading expert on flexibility and mobility is saying that you need to up your game and devote time to uh, drills, uh, stretches, dips, lunges, things that you suck at, uh, rubber band work, that's the really, <laughs> you want to figure out something that's uh, going to give you a good training effect in a short time, you put those stretch bands around your ankles and do even 30 seconds of activity and you wake up the next day and you can barely walk, you know you have some functional weaknesses there that contribute to uh, broken down techniques. So read that section in the book or when you sign up for the mastery course. You know what? I'll give you a little discount since you're listening right now. Top secret. I think the code is BK20. If you go to primalblueprint.com and uh, sign up for the Primal Endurance Mastery course, there's a discount field and you put in BK20 capitals, you're going to get 20% off. Don't tell anybody, but wow, how fortunate and lucky you're listening to this podcast right now. That's a huge savings. We haven't announced this to anybody. I think we're doing some testing of the beautiful new website and uh, that coupon will work. So sign up for the course. It'll change your life. It's everything 
you need to succeed as an endurance athlete. And if you don't like reading or you don't process the information that way, you're too busy, just sit down and push play with our wonderfully categorized videos uh, directly to areas of your particular interest. And now that I'm talking about adding that 15 minutes of flexibility, mobility stuff into your training situation, um, you can find uh, those topics covered by Dr. Starrett right from the horse's mouth. Great stuff. Okay, so thank you for opening up that wonderful commentary, Mark, with your uh, innocent innocent question about stand-up desks. Stand-up desks is the, the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more you can do to be active throughout the day. And you know what's cool also with your mentality is that every little thing you do counts. Dr. Phil Maffetone, world's leading expert, asserts this with great certainty, that if you get off your butt and walk down to the mailbox, why do I use that example? Because when I was a professional triathlete trying to race at the top of the world circuit, I drove my car to my mailbox every single day because I was too lazy in the evening to do so much as stroll there or even pedal my bicycle there. There was a pretty good hill on the way, but I mean, how ridiculous that I get home from an 84 mile bike ride and I refuse to turn around an hour or two later and go get my mail with a backpack on. That's silly, but that was my mentality. It was like, wow, I put in a lot of work today and now I'm going to chill. But if you change that mentality and say, I'm going to be active, healthy, all around fitness person, you will get these wonderful benefits delivered on the race course. And I think I'm echoing the uh, the principles of this intensity-based approach to endurance training, uh, the CrossFit endurance movement where they have endurance athletes going in there and doing box jumps and having that be a direct application to improve performance uh, from mile 20 to mile 26 at the marathon. But unlike the high-intensity, uh, grueling workouts, often grueling because they last possibly too long for most people. They're done most likely too frequently for most people, and they lead to a high-stress score and a high risk of breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Unlike that, just going about your day and doing some deep squats now and then, doing some pull-ups now and then, doing some rubber band work now and then, especially while you're watching TV or just you know killing time in a uh, still situation throw down a little bit. You're not going to get tired. It's not going to ruin the next day's workout because you're too exhausted from doing uh, stretch bands up and down the hall. But that's really what I've drifted to in my personal approach where I'm, I don't know if this is good or bad, man, but uh, my formal strength training sessions are getting uh, less frequent. However, what's getting more frequent is that baseline general uh, daily expenditure of doing little tidbit strength efforts, such as when I get out of the cold freezer, uh, the chest freezer cold therapy, you can see the post on Mark's Daily Apple and the wonderful YouTube video if you just search Brad Kern's chest freezer cold therapy, the beginning of a revolution where everyone's going to have one. It's the absolute most awesome, most affordable peak performance therapy uh, protocol you can get at your fingertips, a cold tub any place, anytime. Oh, love it. Anyway, when I get out and I want to rewarm, I head over to my wonderful new toy, my hex bar for doing deadlifts. I think it's safer than a regular bar, especially for a fragile little weakling like me who can uh, is, is staying under the, the magic 200-pound threshold for deadlifts. In other words, not very impressive with the strength. 
and constantly complaining of little aches and pains, like my IT band will ache one day, and then my elbow will feel it the next day, because I, I guess I don't have strong joints. I'd, I'd never make it on the, the weightlifting circuit. Uh, nevertheless, I'm doing my best and making sure I'm using an appropriate safe weight for the most part, but I'll go over after the cold plunge and do a, a set of six deadlifts. And maybe on many days, that's all I do. One set of six. Not super impressive, but again, if you back up and count 365 days a year, and I'm doing that 300 days a year, that's a lot more deadlifts than someone who's, you know, falling off and not getting to the gym much and therefore doing zero. So just get that zero up to something impressive. Same with my morning routine, which is also on YouTube, um, was featured in a Mark Stanley Apple post. So you can look at Brad Kern's morning routine where I do these flexibility mobility drills in bed before I get get out of bed without fail every single day. And there's not much I can say in my life because I'm kind of a flexible, boundaryless, intuitive dude who will change my mind and go on my whims and uh, uh, go with the flow, especially when it comes to exercise decisions, which I feel is uh, a positive attribute. I'm not uh, criticizing myself for that. But there's very little that I can point to that's an absolute consistent rock solid element of my daily routine. But the morning routine with the legs is there because that's the baseline from which I launch all uh, high-intensity workouts, so it makes it safer because I'm doing something every day to keep those uh, hips and hamstrings mobile. And then also the chest freezer has become an absolute rock-solid part of my daily routine when I have access to it when I'm home. So that really feels great to do the morning routine in bed, do the chest freezer, go about my busy day feeling good. Whew, pretty wordy. Let's try to... um, flow through the questions better. But again, if you're annoyed at my approach here, what I'm trying to do is take every question and apply some fun, uh, memorable principles that'll benefit everybody. Okay. Ryan says, does it make physiological sense to perform a few sets of relatively heavy squats before my morning run to burn off muscle glycogen and get into ketosis faster for the run? Eh... That's my answer. I don't know, man. I mean, maybe it's, <laughs> you understand what he's getting at is if he burns up a little glycogen from doing the explosive stuff, if he does a glycolytic effort, even a short one, is he then going to get depleted quicker such that his body needs to uh, stimulate elevated ketone production uh, and then progress toward his goals of uh, ketosis? Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like um, doing heavy squats before your morning run and you're an endurance athlete and you're in an aerobic base building phase, that might compromise some of your aerobic development. You might stimulate some stress hormones in there, have a little uh, lactic accumulation in the blood, lactate accumulation in the blood, and it might make it more difficult to maintain uh, predominantly fat metabolism for what's supposed to be a comfortable run. So I'd probably be more in favor of not pairing those two. And secondly, uh, if you disagree with me and you think it's great, go ahead and do it because I don't think it's a big deal and I don't think it's going to be a make or break aspect of your goal of becoming a fat adapted athlete or getting into ketosis faster for the run. I'm not sure I care that much about it. not trying to be snarky. I'm just saying that it's an interesting question to pose. Um, I don't think anyone's going to be giving you this emphatic, definitive answer, but it's interesting to think about, but not to worry about. How's that? 
<laughs> All right, Wit. Next, I'm wondering how the math calculation is affected by altitude. I live at 7,000 feet, and most of my recreation is mountain biking at or above 7,000. I find it nearly impossible to ride without going over the 132 beats per minute ceiling for my age of 48. I'm guessing that high altitude is no free pass to push the equation number higher. Of course it's not. And how about your thoughts in general about high altitude and how it relates to primal endurance and the math method in general? For example, the limiting factor for going hard is always cardiovascular for me and never muscular. I wonder how much this would shift at sea level. Does altitude affect the balance or threshold of fat and carb metabolism? Excellent questions, huh? What do you guys think? First of all, the, uh, the answer of getting a free pass because you're at altitude, can you get some more heart rate so you can go at a respectable pace? Of course not. And um, that's what the magic of measuring heart rate is, is your heart rate gives you an indication of the relative stress of the workout based on all external factors, including if it's 110 degrees. Actually, my record is 116. I was in Phoenix uh, in the middle of summer. And uh, we went to the rental car place, and they didn't have one big enough for my family and my brother's family. And we were trying to fit eight, and they had a seven-seater, but I found a place two miles away. And of course, um, you know, we had no way to get there because we didn't have, couldn't fit enough people in one car. So I said, you know what, I'll jog there. It'll be fun. So I ran two miles in 116-degree heat, and um, it was an interesting experience. Wasn't that bad, actually. The worst part was finishing and then going into uh, an ice-cold, air-conditioned office, all sweaty. <laughs> that would be called an aside for the show. Uh, but the heart rate is indicative of all the stresses of the workout that you're under. So if it's hot, if it's high altitude, if you're tired, if you're jacked up on caffeine, you're going to get an elevation of heart rate. I talked about this on a recent show where I was standing on the starting line of the LA Marathon before the start. And I looked down and my heart rate was 125 or something. And I thought the watch was broken, but it was the pure energy and adrenaline and excitement of standing on a starting line that had bumped my heart rate up really high, which means you have fewer heart rates to work with when you're trying to establish a pace. So when you're at high altitude and you have uh, reduced oxygen, you're going to run much slower than you are at sea level, period. Same with hot, humid weather. Okay, so we're going to honor math at all times. Then the part two, what about high altitude training in general? That's a very interesting one. Obviously, the elite athletes have uh, used altitude training for decades as a training strategy. Now we have the altitude tents where we can simulate uh, sleeping at high altitude or even low altitude. Oh my gosh, all kinds of stuff to play around with. The main reason that altitude training has been such an effective tool is because you are forced to make more red blood cells to carry oxygen when there is less oxygen in the environment. And the greater percentage of red blood cells in your body, the higher your hematocrit, uh, the more efficient you will be for endurance activity. That's why the dopers in the endurance sports take EPO, erythropoietin, uh, which is a uh, substance that stimulates your, uh, your body to manufacture uh, more red blood cells, a greater percentage of red blood cells. And you get busted if your hematocrit level is over 50 because it should be uh, somewhere in the 40s is human normal average. But if you go and live at high altitude 
or train at high altitude, you're going to get a bump in your hematocrit naturally. It takes a while. It takes like three weeks, I think, I've heard, to adapt. So if you're going to an altitude race, the best idea is to get there a month early, you know, and really get that benefit, get totally acclimated, make more red blood cells. And I know that's kind of daunting to put that much time in before, especially if you're a recreational participant, not a professional going for the Olympic spot. And so the second best option, listen carefully, is a huge hot tip for competitors going for altitude events. The second best option is to get there right before the race. Slam out the race. Yes, you're going to go slower on the Leadville 100 if you're from sea level going up to that crazy mountain bike ride at 10,000 feet. But you're not going to experience the additional stress of trying to do preparatory workouts for a week or nine days or whatever the people who are getting there early and riding and stressing their bodies with this new uh, experience of having less oxygen to breathe. So the acclimation process is all, all, all in or nothing. Forget it. I also believe the same is true for heat. So the common practice, the common protocol of those Hawaii Ironman athletes going there nine days early and riding their bikes amidst all that energy and stress of all the other athletes, all they're doing is tiring themselves out, wearing themselves down in the oppressive heat and giving themselves less battery power uh, come race day on the starting line. So my recommendation is to either go there a month early and live on the island or wherever your hot weather event is and train every single day and build into it. And after a couple few weeks, you'll start to feel better and better and be more acclimated. Or on the flip side, get your ass there right before the race. Stay in an air-conditioned condo. And then when race day comes, you just suck it up, man. It's going to be hot. Yes, you're going to go slower than if the temperature was cooler. Same with the wind. You're going to go slower. You don't have to train in the wind day after day after day to acclimate. You don't have to train in the heat day after day after day unless you're going for a month. Then you'll get a slight boost in performance uh, because you'll and, and boost in confidence too. I shouldn't discount that. But failing that huge commitment to immerse yourself into the race-like competitive uh, temperature environment, just go there, get it done. And especially when it comes to uh, the big trip to Hawaii or the tropical locations for races. Vacation afterward, man. All these families screw this up so badly where their athlete has to go there eight days before the race. They're stressed the whole time. They got to get their workouts in. We got to put sightseeing on hold because Jimmy Joe Bob has to ride 42 miles today per his uh, coaching guideline because it's six days before the Ironman and everyone's sitting around or doing things without the athlete. And then after the race, what happens? Oh, we're flying home two days later because we got to get back to work because we've been gone for 11 days, wasting nine of them sitting, uh, sitting in the condo and stressing and reading race magazines. So here's my winning formula for uh, a big competitive race. Get there right before the race, do the thing, and then relax and sightsee with your family. Oh my gosh, the sport would be so much better. <laughs> Imagine that. Go over to Kona. If you've been to Kona and seen the scene before the race, the week before the race, with athletes crawling all over the place and filling up every restaurant and getting in line at the health food store and the lines out the door and all the posturing and the stress and the, the, the energy, the, the energy in the air at the expo and all that. Imagine if no one showed up until like a couple days before the race. So the town was like empty. There was no one training in the water. <laughs> and then everybody's vacationing after. That'd be hilarious. Okay. So the thing about altitude is 
you're always going slower. Like Witt says, you're always under that stress of minimal oxygen, and therefore you don't get that stimulation of, let's say, leg turnover or actually moving quickly uh, on, on the various sports. You don't get the stimulation of swimming fast and hitting numbers and intervals or biking you know, with uh, great power output and getting up to 300 watts or whatever uh, because it's so difficult to train. Uh, imagine uh, for argument's sake or for perspective that you had to do your training at Everest Base Camp. You physically could not run a step. You would have to walk. You'd be out of breath in 10 yards. And so that would be tough to train for a C-level marathon, right? It would cease to be an advantage uh, to a great extent because of the high-stress nature of living at altitude and training at altitude. That's why um, a lot of athletes in Mammoth, you know, the great marathoners have uh, been in and out of there over the years. Meb Kaflesky, the greatest American with the greatest longevity of all of any marathon runner in history. In other words, he's been world-class for somewhere around 20 years, absolutely phenomenal, Uh, qualified for the U.S. Olympic team. I think he was 39 when he and Galen Rupp were uh, uh, competing in L.A. and qualifying for Rio, Uh, won the Boston Marathon at, at what, 38? And this is a guy who was, you know, a collegiate All-American runner uh, at UCLA uh, decades before. So incredibly long career. He was based in Mammoth for a long time, Ryan Hall, Sarah Hall, And of course, the pride of mammoth, Dina Castor, who's really made that her home for years and years and enjoyed the mountain lifestyle and the nature and uh, some good quotes. I remember Dina talking about how um, she didn't feel like it was the altitude that was her main advantage of training, but just the nature and the mountain town and the lack of stress and the slow pace. And that was a cool perspective to share besides just this technical aspect of making more red blood cells by living at 8,000 feet. But anyway, what the mammoth athletes would do would be to get in the car and drive down to Bishop, California, only 45 minutes away, but an elevation of 4,000 feet instead of 7,800. And if you're not familiar with training at elevation, the difficulty increases exponentially as the altitude increases. So if you imagine being at 7,000 feet versus being at 8,000 versus being at 9,000, Um, it's more than an incremental difficulty. It just starts to get brutally hard as you get up in altitude. But at 4,000, you can barely feel a difference from sea level. I challenge you to to feel that difference and say that it's really tough working out at 3,500 or 4,000. So as you descend down uh, 2,000, forget about it. It's not even worth measuring. Uh, Another funny anecdote as an aside uh, comes from my triathlon career way back in 1990. I got invited to go to a race in uh, rural Mexico at a resort called Valle de Bravo, a three and a half hours uh, drive outside of Mexico City. So we're faxing back and forth in those days. There wasn't the the email exchange. And I'm getting these cryptic faxes that I'm uh, working on my Spanish, working through it. Mejorando cada día. Quiero practicar con mucha gente. Si puede, si puedo. Uh, pero uh, no soy fluido, pero uh, cerca, cerca, mejorando es las más importante para dar esfuerzo cada día, ¿verdad? Entonces, I'm reading these faxes, 
And the guy says, you will uh, stay in a beautiful resort town. Uh, the lake is elevation 2000. The bicycle ride climbs into the mountains much higher than the lake. And then you come down and run a 10K through the village. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm going. And so what he meant on the facts uh, when, you're, when you're in Mexico and using the metric system was that the lake's elevation was 2000 meters not feet man (laughs) so when the gun went off oh my gosh i thought i was gonna die out there in that lake because i'm sprinting to their first buoy uh, like normal and if you convert yards i mean feet to meters we're talking about a lake level of 6600 feet right 2000 meters around 6600 feet and then the bike ride actually climbed to 10000 feet above sea level and I had no idea and so not only was I not prepared this is the interesting part is that I got so psyched out because I thought something something was wrong with my body I never once considered that I was at extremely high altitude all I knew is that my legs felt like lead and I couldn't breathe and so I was getting totally psyched out. All these great Mexican athletes that I would uh, come to know and appreciate later uh, as friends. We'd, I'd go down there and compete a lot. And these guys were just blowing by me. And I'm like, what is going on? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a mind blower. But if someone had told me, hey, you're going to swim at 6,600 feet and climb up to 10,000 feet, I would have been prepared mentally and not been so panicky and anxious uh, that I was just uh, you know, a thug, a slug out of the gate. <laughs> not a thug, a slug. Anyway, that's my altitude story. And that's a lot of time talking uh, about which question. Again, taking that slow pace through the questions, man, I can't help it. But how about that? That's pretty funny stuff. Okay, we're going to take a breather right there. Thanks for hanging. We got more Q&A coming up in a future show. Thanks for flooding the email inbox. Very thoughtful and interesting questions for all. I appreciate doing it for you. Go check out PrimalEndurance.fit. The Primal Endurance Mastery Course is the ultimate. It's got everything you need to succeed. We have so many wonderful interviews, and you can go and pick and choose what you want. You can return for entertainment value and just navigate through all the peripheral uh, commentary that I got from the, the great athletes and the scientists and the coaches, and all collected in one place, easy to navigate. All the expert interviews are listed in alphabetical order. Uh, at the end of the course, which is organized by chapter. So it's really easy to uh, to pick up where you left off or to go talk to your favorite person over and over. And every video has a nice descriptive title so you know what we're getting into. And they've been chopped up expertly by Brian, the same guy mastering these recordings, so that the content flows nicely from one video to the next. It's good stuff. I appreciate your interest in the podcast, the Primal Endurance Facebook group. And the mastery course. This is Brad Kearns. Until next time, have a great day. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. Used to be called Primal Calm. And the key ingredient in this formula is called phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts 
extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind. We're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout. But instead, this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy, stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events, such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.